This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 257th episode, we're covering the second day of SVP, as well as all of the posters that we saw while we were at the conference and wrote notes on because there were a ridiculous number of posters as usual, hundreds, but I think we only talked to about 10 to 20 people who had posters. And that's because day two of SVP was the one day that was a little bit light on talks Dinosaur talks, anyway. Yes. <laughs> so we have time this week to talk about the posters. We also have some news from around the world, which is not related to SVP. We have an interview with Scott Hartman, famous for his skeletal drawings, which we've talked about several times on the show before. They're all excellent. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Critosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons for keeping the podcast running and helping us pay for our trip to Australia. And this week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Stego Sophie, Ayumi, Paula Canthus, Lydia, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, Mayu, Dino Bo, Mello Stego, Wiki, and Rachel. Yeah, thank you so much for everything. We really appreciate it. And if you want to join this growing group of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. We're actually recording this episode from Sydney. We just got here from Lightning Ridge earlier this week. This is actually our sixth stop in our Australian road trip tour. Next stop is Canberra. We'll talk more about the different cities as we get to episodes where we're doing interviews from those places. But just so you know where we are while we're recording this, you might hear some local Sydney birds in the background because there are a ton of interesting birds in the city. Also keep an eye out for some YouTube videos that we'll be making about museums that we've stopped along the way in the outback and in major cities. Yeah. But on to the main event of this episode, our SVP news. So today we're going to be covering the second day of SVP, which did not have a specific dinosaur session, but there were a few dinosaur talks that I think are worth mentioning. Up first was a talk by Suresh Singh, at least the first of the ones that we can talk about, <laughs> because again, there were a few that we can't talk about since they're not published yet. And Suresh talked about sort of how animals respond to extinction events. And they looked at multiple faunal turnovers, in other words, when a bunch of animals die and then what pops up in their place. And what they wanted to look at was the difference between biological driving forces, which are kind of the traditional sort of things that we think about, like, for example, oh, dinosaurs were the ones that popped up because they were faster. And being fast was important in the early Triassic, and therefore they were the ones that succeeded the most. Other things that are frequently cited in the sort of traditional biological approach are things like how fast they could breed or unique adaptations like how birds can breathe in that really cool out and in at the same time using the air sacs method. But the other approach is using environmental characteristics. For example, if there's a new niche that pops up or there's new plants available to be eaten, then which animal is best suited to take advantage of that? And since we're talking about the environmental impacts of plants, they really focused on herbivores, which is a pretty interesting thing because when you think of early dinosaurs, you think about carnivores since they pretty much all were. 
And what they found was that sauropsid mouths were better for speed. So you could imagine like gobbling up a whole bunch of food quickly, <laughs> whereas synapsids were better for power. But you could see how that might not be as advantageous when you're talking about chewing plants. But there was a lot of convergent evolution and a lot of the groups when they did their principal component analysis, which is basically plotting out the differences between the different animals, ended up kind of in the same areas. So they were trying to fill the niches, but they were all kind of headed in the same directions. So it's really hard to prove exactly why dinosaurs were the animals that won out in the Triassic using math. <laughs> it's easy for us because we could just say, well, they're really cool. <laughs> and they were clearly the best animals at the time. But showing exactly what gave them that edge is proving difficult to learn. Up next was a talk by Caleb Gordon, and they were talking about, and he was talking about a bromolite, which is a word that I hadn't heard before, which is either a coprolite or a regurgitolite, which I don't know if we've talked about before. So basically, it's anything that an animal was eating and then has expelled from its body out either end. <laughs> and he pointed to a question that Mirvold has asked in the past, which is, where are all the regurgitolites? That's a good question. I've never heard that word before or even thought about that. But we do talk about coprolites. <laughs> yes, because, you know, everything poops. And a lot of times we find fossilized poop. And you can even find like jewelry of coprolite because a lot of times it's sort of swirled and colorful and really interesting looking. <laughs> yeah, Samrina's making a really grossed out face. But... With regurgitolites, it's possible that we're just misidentifying a lot of them as coprolites because they have a lot of things in common. They're still the same kind of mushed up mass of material. They have a lot of small, bony, broken up fragments in them. They have other decaying matter in them, and they're going to preserve in a similar way because they have similar chemistry because it's the same stuff that the animal ate. No matter how long it sits in their body, it's going to be relatively similar. Because of that, a lot of the different criteria you'd use to determine the difference of these bromelites gets confused. But what Gordon was discussing was a specimen specifically from Petrified Forest National Park, which was four and a half kilograms, which is over 10 pounds. It was 50 centimeters across, which is about two feet. And it appeared to be a bone fragment pile. After looking at it, it looks like it was a Revueltasaurus, which isn't a dinosaur, it's a Pseudosuchian, but the bones were semi-articulated, but weirdly they're grouped by grain size, and grain size is often sorted by river. You could imagine the smaller bones kind of filtering down to the bottom and the larger ones percolating up to the top, so that happens when there's water mixing things around. You can do experiments where you'll see this happen, like all the crumbs in the bottom of a potato chip bag, same kind of thing. But the bones were also aligned along an axis as if pushed through a tube. So you can imagine what kind of tubes we're talking about, you know, basically an esophagus or the other end of a dinosaur. And what they found was a phosphatic composition, which you typically see in these bromelites. So when things are getting digested and they're in the stomach acid, they pick up a little bit more of this phosphorus and their chemistry changes a little bit. To compare the different types of bromelites, the coprolites to the regurgitolites, they looked at crocodiles and they found that when crocodiles are digesting their food, a lot of the calcium slowly gets dissolved in the stomach acid and the collagen that's left has a kind of torn appearance to it under a microscope. So it's starting to decay, but it's not all the way decayed yet. But by the time it gets all the way through and makes it to the coprolite phase, it should be more digested. So there really shouldn't be much collagen left. The calcium should be a lot more eroded and you shouldn't be seeing as many soft tissue things because it's nutritious. So the animal wants to digest it. But with a regurgitolite, it's not in the system long enough to digest us fully. So we should be seeing more of this soft tissue type stuff preserved and maybe a little bit more calcium. But in this block, they found that there were even muscle fibers present. And that means that it was likely never exposed to a compound called trypsin, which is in the gut of crocodiles and it dissolves muscle fibers. And therefore they think that this was probably a regurgitolite as well as the fact that some of the other factors were a little bit less digested looking. So we might have our first really good piece of evidence for a regurgitolite 
or maybe there are more around and we just haven't heard about them because they don't make the news all that often. But maybe we can use this research in the future to find more regurgitolites. And then we can learn a little bit more about which animals might have digested their food fully. Like we think T-Rex, you know, could dissolve bone basically down to nothing. And others might have had to regurgitate the bones because they didn't want to try to pass them. Or they got sick. Yeah. Or maybe they're like a snake where they have to spit it up because it's too big and it's weighing them down. I don't know. And the last of our three talks that we're going to talk about from Thursday was by Kyle Ferguson. And he was looking at how we might be able to identify which site bones came from by looking at the geochemistry of the bones themselves. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. With modern technology, we can do pretty thorough analysis of all the different elements that you find in a chemical sample. So by doing this on some fossilized bone, they were able to pretty closely identify where some fossils came from, although there's still a fair amount of overlap in the chemistry, at least in the area they were looking at. But fortunately, this technique isn't very destructive. It only took about three milligrams of material, which he said was only about one mil deep into the fossil. And then you get a pretty good signature of where the fossil might have come from. The interesting thing to me about that too was he said, even if you go deeper to sample more of the bone, it tends to become elements that sort of taper off in relation to the surrounding rock anyway, because it doesn't diffuse as quickly deep into the bone. So it's kind of like you just skim a little layer off the top and then you can compare it to the rock that it was buried in and you might be able to find exactly where your bone came from, which could be incredibly useful in maybe identifying which bones might be associated with holotypes that were described a really long time ago, or just finding localities that weren't well documented. And since Thursday was a pretty slow day, we're going to jump on to the posters that we saw during the talk. And we should definitely say that there were hundreds of posters and the ones that we got to talk to and learn about are semi-random <laughs> because it's a combination of whether the presenter was there and available to talk to when we walked by their poster and if it was obviously related to dinosaurs in a major way and a lot of other details then yeah it's just kind of a crapshoot of what we ended up talking about but we did see quite a few amazing posters so we want to discuss them a little bit the first poster that we saw was by scott hucknell and he was in the sort of educational outreach section of the posters which was really great we talked to quite a few people in that area and specifically in his case he was describing three different case studies on how to get the public involved with dinosaur discoveries during either construction projects or mining operations or other things where you might want some public involvement and public knowledge of the site yeah and all of them were successful yeah and it's also really helpful because a lot of times there's a limited period of time when you can work on these things. So getting more people involved really helps. And like Sabrina said, they did manage to get a lot of people involved in all of these examples. One of the times they even managed to convince a mind to sort of change its direction so that it wasn't sort of destroying <laughs> fossils in the area and might be doing a little bit less damage. Yeah, and one of the times they only had, I think it was either a few days or a few weeks to pull it together. <laughs> yeah, so they got a whole bunch of people out to sort of sift through the stuff that had been gathered and dumped off to the side and found a ton of fossils. It was really cool. We also talked to Stuart Sumita, who had a poster. Well, he had a couple posters, but the one we talked to him most about was the Patterns Project, where they basically animated evolution. And it was really cool. And we'll get more into it with him because we got to interview him later. And on the theme of teaching evolution, Thaisa Rodriguez also had a poster up and, and you probably heard her interview last week where she got 10 teenagers to come in on Saturdays to learn about evolution, which was really cool. Yeah, by creating paleo art. We also got to catch up with Ariel Marcy, who had a poster about a new game. You might remember that we interviewed her about her previous game, Go Extinct, which is kind of like Go Fish, except you're making a giant cladogram. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. It was really fun. So her new game is about how the scientific method is done, and it's really collaborative. She says it's kind of like the game Pandemic. And she also has another game out, which is kind of like Cards Against Humanity. And also an update to Go Extinct, will be coming out to coincide with a new book that's sort of related. And that's all in addition to working on her PhD. So she's incredibly busy. 
and making lots of cool stuff. On a different note, we talked briefly to Kyla Bagues, I think is how you say her last name. Sorry if I screwed that up. And she was showing off a really cool pathology in an early Therizinosaur, which will get published in the near future, hopefully. And then we'll learn more about exactly where this pathology came from. <laughs> but it's the bone looks crazy. It's like a bulge that, you know, you can't even imagine having this kind of thing inside your body growing out of a bone. Yeah, it looked pretty gnarly. Yeah. We also caught up with Emmanuel Shop, who we've interviewed before. He's the one who brought back Brontosaurus in his amazingly thorough analysis of basically all the sauropods. <laughs> at SVP this year, he used vertebrae to look at the range of two different dinosaurs in the U.S. So basically in the late Jurassic, we had a couple of diplodocids in the Morrison Formation. And we've been wondering basically if they're valid how much they overlapped, is one, should one be a species, all that kind of stuff. And what he found was that if you compare all the bones, you get kind of a confused mass of where the dinosaurs are. But if you look just at the vertebrae, because most of the dinosaurs are known from vertebrae, so you don't get as many confusing situations where it looks like, you know, these two dinosaurs might have been in the same place, but you're comparing a foot of one to an arm from the other, and we might not know exactly how different they were. Whereas if you're looking just at vertebrae, you're then comparing apples to apples rather than apples to oranges. And with this vertebrae comparison, it looks like the range of the two dinosaurs are a little bit more isolated. So maybe they didn't overlap quite as much as we thought they did before, which is good to know because we're always wondering how these dinosaurs interacted exactly. We also saw a poster by Kaylee Viersma. This is the one that made a lot of headlines and things like sauropods may have had turtle-like beaks and things like that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. So the way that she determined that sauropods might have had beaks was by looking almost exclusively at the teeth. So we've talked before about how you can look at sort of the tissue in the maxilla or maybe in the jaw, and then you can look for where a beak might have been. And then also a lack of teeth is a pretty good way to tell if an animal might have had a beak. But the weird thing is the sauropod had lots of teeth. <laughs> It's a typical sort of eusauropod. But the thing that made it look like it might have a beak is based on the wear patterns of the teeth. So if you look at the teeth, you see that it has wavy enamel, but it's worn smooth at a specific point. And if you draw a line with all the teeth still in the jaw and in the maxilla on the top, you get a line that sort of connects through all the smooth points. And it's well beyond the base of the tooth and where we expect the gum to be. So it could be that there was a beak that sort of covered the base of the teeth, preventing them from getting worn down at that point. Yeah, so they looked at seven fossils of isolated rows of teeth that had up to 40 teeth, and they also looked at skulls and teeth of Camarasaurus and Europosaurus. Yeah, so we might be seeing depictions of them with beaks in the future. That would be fun. It's so weird, especially because they had a full mouth of teeth, but there's a proposal that maybe it was sort of a double cutting, like the beak cut and then the teeth cut the food. Yeah. Seems the more we learn about dinosaurs, the more bird-like they get. Yeah. <laughs> Beaked sauropods is just next level. Especially with that neck, it makes it like a swan or something. Oh, yeah. Don't get in their way. Are dinosaurs scarier with beaks? Beaks with teeth, sure. Even if they are herbivores. I guess that's the thing, because herbivorous teeth aren't very good at chopping bone. But if you add a beak to it, it can do some damage. Mm -hmm. That's why they needed the beak. We've seen so many, speaking of birds, so many types of birds in Australia and watching them eat because they're fascinating. The funniest ones are the ibis also known as the bin chicken. Yeah, because <laughs> they have a really long bill and then you see them trying to eat something that they're clearly not evolved to eat and they're trying to like get it down their bill, <laughs> flinging their head back. And a lot of times it falls out of their mouth before they can get it all the way to their throat. The birds here are also very comfortable being around humans. Yeah, like in most cities, I would say. Yes. But it's weird when they're huge, like an ibis. Yep. <laughs> and then it just jumps onto a table. Yeah. And looks at you like, why are you not feeding me? Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty funny. And the last poster that we're going to talk about, although again, there were many more that we saw, but we just didn't 
take great notes on all of them, <laughs> was by Lee. And he was presenting on a new Halskoraptor-like dinosaur that had a slightly longer and more squished snout, even though Halskoraptor kind of already has a very long snout. It's probably partially due to preservation, but he expects that even without preservation, it would have been a longer and narrower snout. Interestingly, it was found in a different area than Halskoraptor, although like Halskoraptor, this new dinosaur is also from Mongolia, so may not be too far apart, but Mongolia is a big country, so it could be still pretty far away. We'll just have to wait and see when the paper gets published, and we'll also get a name for it. So stay tuned for next episode when we'll be covering the third day of SVP with another dinosaur session, so there's tons of talks. But we also have some dinosaur news because the news never stops. <laughs> it doesn't, even though I've been ignoring it. Sabrina's been better. <laughs> <laughs> so first up, there's a new paper by Les Hearn and Amanda Williams that was published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, and it was called Pain in Dinosaurs, What is the Evidence? And it's kind of like a thought experiment. It's using circumstantial evidence from fossils, and they're looking at related living animals to describe how they responded to serious injuries. So they looked through 196 papers about healed serious injuries, uh, also limping gaits and injured feet and trackways, information about physiology and behavior regarding healing, evidence of evolutionary connections between birds and crocodilians and their behavior as well. And they found that a lot of dinosaurs survived injuries that would have hurt their mobility and their ability to hunt or run away from predators, and it would have also affected their social interactions. Yeah, we've seen quite a few examples of animals with like really messed up toes and things, but we're clearly walking on them for a long time because they're pretty fully healed. Yes, but they did find that rates of recovery seemed faster than other reptiles, and then mm -hmm. When nesting's communal, that may have meant that parental and group protection helped for injured young. Also, the existence of family groups or packs or herds, they may have had protection for or help getting food from pack kills. Oh, yeah, good point. And I really liked this New York Times article about it where they asked Ben Golas, a veterinarian who was unrelated to this paper, but how he would care for injured dinosaurs. And he said, well, first they'd have to make their doors bigger. <laughs> but he also said that the injuries in the paper are pretty close to injuries that he's used to treating in other animals. So for example, so the T-Rex's injuries about the broken arm bones is like if a big dog got hit by a car. Oh, what hit the T-Rex? A bigger car. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or something that felt like a car. So... He said he'd immobilize the injured right arm by bandaging it against the body and then maybe give Sue a cone so that Sue couldn't lick the wound. <laughs> I think it's been proposed that Sue fell down on its arm, we should probably say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. Another example is an ornithopod with a damaged toe pad that was limping. He suggested uh, giving it a ball bandage, which is a thick wad of gauze wrapped around the foot that the animal can grab onto. And they do this with birds with claw distress to take pressure off the painful area. For the Dilophosaurus that had eight injuries on its forelimb. I remember that one. Yeah, including a fractured scapula and an abscess on the hand. This is probably from a fight. It would need to be stabilized and given antibiotics and a muzzle for when animals are in pain and they want to protect their limbs. It also might possibly need to be amputated, the forelimb, if the infection gets worse. And then he'd recommend having it live in a Dilophosaurus rescue center. <laughs> That'd be a terrifying place. Yeah. Yeah, because that one got super infected. So antibiotics would have been helpful. Oh, yeah. And for the Oviraptor with a fracture in the forearm, he suggested a figure eight style bandage to keep the forearm still. And then last, for the Tyrannosaur who had a broken tooth inside its jaw from a bite to the face. Oh, yeah. It was like another animal's tooth. Yeah. In its jaw. They'd have to remove the tooth. Seems obvious. And that one's probably infected. And then give it a soft diet, maybe via a feeding tube, which would be a funny sight. It would be hard to pull off a feeding tube on a large Tyrannosaur. Yes. It'd be more like a feeding hose. <laughs> <laughs> and the gross stuff you'd be pumping through that tube. But speaking of Sue the T-Rex, the Field Museum in Chicago has 
a new thing where you can smell Sue's breath, which the museum says is putrid. (laughs) And there are new sensory stations too, so you can feel dinosaur skin. And in addition to smelling Sue's breath, you can hear a T-Rex and you can watch Sue, quote, tromp through the late Cretaceous forest. And apparently the breath was designed with the idea that T-Rex teeth would hold on to flesh and smell bad, which makes sense. And then the sounds are based on crocodiles and bitterns, which is a type of bird. Oh, so they're probably like booming or like row growls, not like the big Tyrannosaurus Rex roar in <laughs> Jurassic Park, which is like the whale and lion and all that combined. Yeah. So it'll be a little bit different. In Westchester, New York, there's a grassroots effort to protect land in Rockland County. And this is where dinosaur tracks and fossils have been found. So a developer, Ryerson Farms LLC, wants to change the zoning for housing. And the application has been removed. And now the residents are working on preserving the area. And eventually they want to make it an educational experience. Cool. Yeah. Uh, In Austin, Texas, there's a weird neon green dinosaur as there are many weird things in Austin, because you want to keep it weird. <laughs> and that's the mascot for a pizza place, Mangia, and the dinosaur is named Mangiosaurus Rex. It was created by Austin artist Dale Whistler, and Mangiosaurus has apparently been part of school pranks, though one in 2004 resulted in damage when Mangiosaurus was dropped. Mm-hmm. The paleontology department at the University of Texas, Austin, worked to restore Mangiosaurus at their vertebrate paleontology lab. (laughs) And on October 25th in 2004, the mayor at the time, Will Wynn, declared it Mangiosaurus Day when it went up on the roof of Mangia. And a few years later in 2007, the restaurant Mangia was trying to move the dinosaur to a different location, but they couldn't find room for him. So Wheatsville Co-op Grocery offered to put the dinosaur up on their roof. And then a city ordinance group got involved and said they couldn't have the dinosaur. And Mayor Wynn protested this at an Austin City Council meeting. And now Mangiosaurus is on top of Wheatsville. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) I wonder what the concern was about having it up there. I think they didn't want to open the floodgates of weird things going up on roofs. Oh, yeah. The Austin weirdness is spreading. In Ohio, in Fairview Park, Special Spaces Cleveland worked with the Jurassic World Live Tour to design a dinosaur bedroom for Ezra Boggs, who's a six-year-old with cancer. And they surprised him, and he was very excited. He sleeps in a gyrosphere now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yes, that's a really nice thing they did. And last, Lego has a new 910-piece dinosaur fossil set. One of their fan creations has now been brought to life. And you can build a... How do you read that? One thirty second scale. And you can build a one thirty second scale replica of Triceratops, T-Rex, and Pteranodon, which is not a dinosaur, but it's okay, along with display stands and plaques so you can have your own desk museum if you wanted. It costs about $100 US, and it includes a paleontologist Lego figure and a Lego sapien skeleton figure, <laughs> which is pretty funny when you see the two together. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dino dig. You'll get all of the details. 
Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Scott Hartman. We're here at SVP with Scott Hartman, who's a paleo artist and lecturer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for the Department of Integrative Biology. And he's done probably hundreds of skeletal drawings, and his work's been featured in books, museums, academic publications. He's also been a science consultant for film and TV, published also numerous papers, and presented at conferences. Oof. (laughs) Very accomplished. Well done. That was a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for chatting with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, So last year you did a presentation on ground up versus trees down being a fight. And that 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 is a false dichotomy. Yeah. And you had a great (laughs) dad joke. Uh, I remember that. uh, Yeah. I made a couple, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And a few bad memes. (laughs) So, Yeah. One of one of your dad jokes was, where do we go from here? That was the one I wrote down. Right. For wing assisted incline running. Yeah. yeah. Well, so that was my transition. Um, for years, people have been saying, oh, this is a false dichotomy. You know, some people are like, ah, oh, they're all in trees and they had to like glide down with parachutes so that they could like invade someplace. And, <laughs> um, and other people are like, no, no, that's crazy because it doesn't look like a lot of these bird like dinosaurs are in trees. And so therefore they're not. And therefore they just like must have been all from the ground up with like rost- rocket boosters they strapped to their butts or whatever and um <laughs> tails i guess theropods but um <laughs> and and then of course wing assisted incline running or, or where was suggested years ago as maybe like a sort of panacea to bridge it but it's it's kind of fallen out of favor because to be really good at this whole wit- ability to like run up a tree while flapping and creating like a strong downdraft to stick you to it kind of like a kind of like a Formula One racer, but with wings rather than spoilers, you have to actually have pretty advanced shoulders and stuff. And, you know, a lot of things you need to fly, you have to have to wear. Mm. And it also turns out that perhaps it's not quite as broadly distributed amongst basal birds as, like, was first thought. So then they're like, well, maybe maybe it's just a specialized behavior that we really don't see. Some papers have come out that also suggested that maybe Archaeopteryx, maybe Microraptor could do wear, but probably not most of these other little small feathered Periavian non gotcha. non birdie dinosaurs, mm-hmm. and so that was my transition. Then, like, if we can't do either of those two or any of the you know suggested things, where do we go? <laughs> and the key here, and something that actually in our more recent paper on Hesperornithoides that also came out, mm-hmm. is that it turns out that we're probably not building these models of how things learn to fly for birds correctly. We tend to pick out all the things that have really big wings, like Microraptor, like Archaeopteryx, sometimes like. Anchiornithids, although there are some papers that have come out and probably will come out that suggest that maybe those aren't actually relevant. But the point is we look at these animals and we're like, okay, if we can draw a line from here to there to there, that will be how birds learn to fly. Let me walk us back there. Flight might be a strong word. People, mm-hmm. I say flight and people are like, oh, you're going to migrate south for the winter. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely not what we're talking about. I should say aerial behavior of some sort. Mm-hmm. And where is just one of those possible aerial behaviors. So if we are seeing big, well, small theropods with big wings living for like tens of millions of years, it's not surprising probably that they came up with a few times their own solutions to use those wings in ways that weren't just running around on the ground. And so where is probably one of those? I mean, the fact that Microraptor and Archaeopteryx look like they could potentially have performed where might also then explain why they have those so much more enlarged <laughs> wings, and it also solves the dichotomy of they don't look like they can climb trees very well. But being in trees is certainly a, a nice way to gain some elevation. They're still certainly leaping to create the forward momentum, but, mm-hmm. but still, it doesn't hurt to have a couple of meters of space below you. Yeah. So yeah, so I think there is like a really intriguing possibility there where where still plays a role, perhaps in the couple of ones that experimented with aerial behavior, and then solving the how do you get in trees if trees is important. And it might have been important because the actual group that both had aerial behavior but also leads to birds without losing the aerial behavior, like the ones that aren't buried amongst non 
flighted theropods mm-hmm. are in fact the ones that show like they are the most adapted for living in trees, at least sort of. Like they're the ones that actually seem to have the more curved claws. Eventually, like up around Confucius ornithids and stuff, you do get reversed halixes and stuff. But yeah. you know, you uh, with scansoriopter rigids, if they do end up there, like they have kind of a reduced pelvis, which would have let them kind of cr- crouch closer to the substrate, which is handy because if you're like up on a branch or a tree, the closer you get to the substrate, the sort of less likely you are to fall off. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like slamming a door is way easier if you grab the outside of the door rather than like right up by the hinge. You know, there's a whole leverage problem. The further away you are, the more leverage you have. But if you're trying to like hold on down by the base of the tree and mm-hmm. you have really long legs, that leverage is now fighting you because yeah. you don't want to tip over. You want to be like, like a, a lizard sprawled yeah. out along. Yeah. Yep. Is that one of your focuses for your PhD? Because you're almost done with your PhD. I am. Um, so I have several focuses in my PhD. <laughs> that is a one of the chapters I've done is dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Broadly speaking, I'm dealing with physiological modeling and extinction amongst Mesozoic dinosaurs. So, one of the chapters does look at the issue of like overall diversity, and specifically, obviously, the origin of birds is like one of those big bunches of diversity increase that we see in the latter half of the Mesozoic. So, that was the excuse I used to shoehorn that in. Mm -hmm. Um, Since it was ongoing research and a big project I was doing, anyways, um, other parts I'm looking at, I'm I'm looking at, uh, well, the physiological modeling part. In fact, we just submitted, uh, resubmitted a paper with some co-authors trying to like look at uh, some Triassic dinosaurs, mm-hmm. specifically like Coelophysids and, and Platyosaurids or some generic sauropod, prosauropod grade sauropodomorph and look at how they behave in different environments. And this is like a two-pronged part because physiological modeling is used for living animals all the time. And it's, it's actually amazingly effective because it turns out that the tyranny of physics, mm-hmm. you know, controls everything. <laughs> In fact, it's funny how once you start, like, doing these, like, you just see it all the time. Like, the cat comes down and, like, curls up on your lap because it wants to, like, be all comfortable. Then it's there for a while and it gets warm. So, it, like, kind of uncurls a little bit to, like, increase its surface area without thinking about it. And then eventually it gets up and walks off because it's, like, too warm or you kick it <laughs> off because you're too warm. <laughs> or, or you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I want to kick the covers off a little bit. It's, like, little things that you don't think about, but they're all just literally thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. controlling yeah. your life without <laughs> you knowing it. So it works really well with living animals, but the thing about living animals is we can get more direct observations, obviously, about the physiology than we can with extinct animals. Yeah. You can't shove a thermometer anywhere with a fossil and get useful data, <laughs> well, at least about its physiology. And so we had to kind of come up with a way to narrow it down, like retrofitting it backwards. Mm. So before even doing the environmental work, we created virtual metabolic chambers, which is a thing you really use in real life where you like measure oxygen being consumed and you can take temperatures and you mm-hmm. can vary the uh, the internal temperature and see how the organism responds. So these are, of course, mathematical constructs. We didn't literally make little models of that, but bad. And what's neat about that is because the, we, we know their shape and therefore their mass within a reasonable you know degree, reasonable enough degree, it turns out we had to do some sensitivity analysis to prove it was reasonable. You can actually go through and see how they behave in environments you know they they were in, as well as in like sort of cobbled together different environmental scenarios, and it actually lets you rule out. It turns out a bunch of different combinations hmm. of metabolisms and insulation or lack thereof and stuff. Mm-hmm. And with that, we could narrow it down to a much narrower range of plausible physiologies for them to have. And then you can stick them back in the environments where you're using geochemical proxies and sedimentological data to you know figure out how much rainfall there was on average and and then it models them, like, for a few days per week for, like, a year and uh, kicks out data. And then you can see things like, oh, these animals should be really happy in these latitudes with these kinds of temperatures and less happy here. Or if you assume some other physiology there. And what's really neat is with modern paleontological databases, um, like the paleobiology database, <laughs> um, you can go in and actually test. Like, these become explicit hypotheses. You can say, well... Are these taxa found in the areas we've said that they should be comfortable in or not? Because mm-hmm. it's hard to argue with the data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been able to get really high congruence with that. And that's neat. And then we've been able to follow it up by testing some some sort of theoretical assumptions. Like it's been noted that there are like almost no prosauropod body fossils at sort of like low latitudes mm. in the Triassic. It's, a, it's often called like the prosauropod gap. So if you mind the gap, um, (laughs) 
it turns out that that actually like when we've stuck prosauropods with sort of like in between sort of monotreme and like emu level you know mm-hmm. le- like above lizard level but not placental mammal hummingbird mm-hmm. you know level of metabolisms that they are indeed heat stressed in those low latitudes in the plausible triassic environments we can so we can turn you know turn around with this and be like oh look it says they shouldn't be very happy here and indeed we don't find almost any fossils here at all was it just hotter in the triassic than it was in hotter and drier yep especially yeah. in those areas yeah yep gotcha and so with their their thermoregulating they would have had a harder time it might also explain surprisingly interesting details so a lot of the early dinosaur groups the cerisian groups they're all very like sort of long mm-hmm. and like narrow side to side mm-hmm. And the thing about that kind of configuration is, is that you've minimized your solar cross-section right. and maximized your surface area for radiating heat. Yeah, and that's so, interesting. Yeah, like we have this image of what basal dinosaurs look like, and it's probably not a coincidence they look <laughs> like a way, right? It's, right. It's ongoing adaptive you know, responses to the environments they're evolving in. If only they had some feathers to shade themselves from the sun, too. <laughs> so we, we do address that topic. It is possible to make little see the physoid things happy in some areas with, with or without them. But the only solution that would let them sort of cover their whole range is suggestive of some sort of a shaded epidermal yeah, covering up above. You'll probably have to wait for the paper for all the details. But yeah. Um, but yes, we do address that. That is an interesting question. And yeah. Nice. You're thinking about it right. It reminds <laughs> me of Australia because I, I remember seeing something on a comparison between emus and the red kangaroo. And basically red kangaroo have to spend all day laying in the shade because it's too hot because hair doesn't you know insulate you from the heat. Right. But the emu can just run around and do yep. whatever they want because yep. <laughs> the feathers do such a better job at protecting at from protect, the yep. heat. Shading them. Also being like tall, they kind of do like the same thing, right? Like the necks are very, mm-hmm. right. That not same, not yeah. a much solar cross section, and then you get, yep, shaded parts, and then that neck has to be a good radiator too. <laughs> right, you don't insulate the parts; you'd rather be radiators. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that may be that may be common. Um, of course, more fossils would be awesome, but we're working with what we have. What we have is body fossils, and therefore we can get shape. And, yeah. So. Cool. cool. Yep. So, what's your process for the skeletal drawings? Sure. I just think about them and then go to sleep and I wake up under my pillow the next day. The skeletal fairy has no um <laughs> like the elves and the shoemaker. <laughs> that would be the best. So, okay, so if I'm going to start a, a skeletal for a new dinosaur, mm. there's most of it, the first half of the time is often data gathering. Mm-hmm. So ideally that would mean I get to go photograph and measure a specimen. Obviously, that's not always practical because of time or money or deadlines or all three. Mm-hmm. So usually when that's not practical, the preference then is like you're working with somebody else who's happy to supply photos and measurements. There are other times when that's not practical and then you have to hope that it's well documented in the literature, which you can have mixed results with. Mm. Um, (laughs) Pro tip, don't rely upon scale bars. I'm pretty sure scale bars are meant to give you a very general feel of the size of the item, not be literal measurement tools because they're frequently off by like five to 15 percent yeah wow. and sometimes they have fun things like no numbers <laughs> in the <laughs> captions or on the photo and you're like oh there's the scale bar <laughs> oh yeah we've it come t- across that <laughs> tells me something yeah uh, and sometimes they just give you numbers that are obviously not possible or else the animal would be like the size of godzilla or an ant um, i've got a few favorite examples stashed away in a folder somewhere of that <laughs> kind of thing um but anyway so the goal then is to get all the measurements I don't always work. I know some people like to blow up their scale in Photoshop. So it's like one pixel equals so many millimeters or centimeters. I actually don't do the one-to-one. I I tend to, I know the size I want to create. I have a computer with like all the RAM. (laughs) It's like 64 gigabytes. It's not that much, but it's a bit. And like a whole bunch of SSDs because Photoshop just eats through like, yeah, yeah, really fast. (laughs) So that way my scratch disks are not as fast as RAM, but as fast as they can be. People are like, why do you build a computer that way? Like, can you game on them? It's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but it holds files when I draw them really well. <laughs> um, so I actually build the file size. Like, cause, because I work in Photoshop and not Illustrator, I want to build in as much resolution as I can so that nobody ever comes to me and is like, I need this to go on a billboard. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? You know, I don't want to like have be blurry when I blow it up. Right. It is occasionally a problem when I have to deal with skeletals back from like the late 90s when I did skeletals. Some of them were done in pen and ink originally before I scanned them in to finish them. 
once upon a time, I did them the old-fashioned way with analog media. In fact, and this is a true story, uh, in high school, I, I, I actually had a girlfriend, which is in and of itself or a paleo geek is probably hard to believe, but, <laughs> but I did. And there was actually a period of time where I was inking them in my first faltering attempts at really awful skeletal drawings. And I would like outline them and she would help fill them in, which long suffering poor dear that she was. Um, <laughs> but I really appreciate it. But anyways, back to the modern world. So, so I just tried to create a really large file size and then calculate what the appropriate um, scale is from there, you know, pixels to meters or centimeters or what have you. And I just do the math. It's, you know, it's just algebra. So you just go through and save in the conversion ratio in your calculator app and just start going through. Mm. So I try to get lots of like linear measurements down everywhere. And then I draw the individual bone elements on separate layers in Photoshop, hence all the RAM. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what I will often do now, because often I've drawn pretty close relatives, I'll actually take an older one, I'll hack up like the vertebrae so that they're squashed and stretched to essentially the right linear dimensions. Mm. And then you can look at the actual vertebrae and how they differ as you're drawing them, but it kind of gives you like a real rough guide to the proportions as I'm drawing, so I don't have to think quite as hard about that part especially if I'm in a hurry. <laughs> but anyways, once you draw all the bones, you just start articulating. So I usually start from the pelvis and build the vertebrae going forward up to the head and then the tail going backwards. Mm-hmm. And especially because like the shape of the back and the neck is often really important in what the animal finally looks like. Tail maybe a little less so because they just kind of hang out in most of the dinosaurs. Nobody ever cares about the right, tail. Right, right. <laughs> True story. If this is like, I don't, I haven't numbered them. This is like one of my rules of observing skeletal drawings if you if a tail is going to be drawn wrong Mm -hmm. like misproportioned it will always be significantly too short unless the animal has a claim to being the biggest ever (laughs) 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 and then it will always be too long (laughs) (laughs) so giant sauropods super long tail sometimes well beyond what probably i would guess the tails could be lots of other things people draw them that's like they're in a hurry and they just want to get yeah. yeah, that's enough vertebrae. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. God, vertebrae are the worst. I've done like forty. How many more does it need? Right. Let's just stop here. Yep, yep. <laughs> Maybe I'll just kind of tail them off quickly. And, yeah. yeah, yep, yep. Absolutely. I won't name names, but you can see that. <laughs> so, anyways, once I draw those, then it's drawing the limb bones, and then I actually spend a lot more time on the silhouettes than I think most people maybe assume. Or I mean, I'm sure some people put lots of time, and I don't want to. So what others do, but um, I really do usually try to build up the muscles to some degree mm-hmm. when I do it. And partially that's just because I know, um, you know, for better or for worse, some people will look at them and just kind of draw their life reconstructions based upon the outlines I've put. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which they shouldn't do, not even so much <laughs> legally or ethically, but because those are actually flayed skeletals. Like, I'm not accounting for skin depth when I do them. Right. They're just, like, muscle contours. Mm. Yeah. Which is actually a thing the OG guy, um, Greg Paul, used to, you know, do, and he made it explicit when he wrote Predatory Dinosaurs of the World that they're muscle silhouettes. Mm-hmm. And yet, how many people draw them by, like... Right. Well, right. that's the shrink wrap. Effect, right. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the funny thing. And then I have guilt that I accidentally contributed to shrink wrapping, <laughs> which is why I try to make sure that at least the muscle outlines are, like properly bulked up and yeah Yeah. and there was there were older ones that i drew before i was as good of an anatomist uh years ago not as many years as i would probably like but years ago more like the base of the tail was not as heavy as it probably should have been and people should always check the freshness dates in their skeletal drawings like i always put copyright dates and then change them when i modify them not so much out of legal protection although obviously that that's good but because if you have one that says 2004 it might not be as reliable as one that says 2014 Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah, so that's that's the process. The the silhouette's on a separate layer. It's just a black, you know, layer of pixels beneath. Yeah. And that also lets me like repose them relatively easily. You know, if you want to like have it going like, oh dear, it's so hot out here, I can like, you know, go <laughs> tweak the humerus up and pull the four of them up. And Photoshop has a great Control Shift T or I suppose Command Apple T or whatever, mm-hmm. where it'll repeat the exact same transformation that you just did from the same pivot point and the same amount and the same scaling. So like. If you're going to have to move like, you know, a bone and then part of the silhouette underneath, you can just kind of go select it with the lasso tool and do that and it'll move it. And you'll have to redraw the missing parts because it's not deforming, but at least it gets the bulk of the... Yeah. So that's yeah. cool. Do you pretty regularly update your drawings? Yeah. I probably put about 100 hours a year into just revising old ones. I tend to do it thematically. Like I did a big update to Hadrosaurs mm-hmm. around last year on 
holidays, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you remember. <laughs> one, <laughs> of us, right. one of us was yeah. there. <laughs> uh, and, you know, just because it's also easier to do the same thing again and again. Um, less fun, but but more efficient, and that's good. <laughs> so I tend to do that in batches. This past year, I've been working on redoing megalosaurus skulls because some more data has come in probably about how megalosaurus skulls should be done and also kind of links up to the whole worrying about spinosaurus, which I've been trying to like revise my skeletals on. I know nobody cares about spinosaurus itself, but slowly <laughs> trying nobody. to work that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, the, re- the reality is I have to work in fits and starts because, you know, I have to teach and finish my dissertation and right. my family occasionally expects me to like pay attention to them. <laughs> Plus all the other projects. Right, right, right. <laughs> I get commissions and they are more valuable in the literal sense. <laughs> what triggered the the redraw of the hadrosaurus? Was it like a lot of things that are slowly just like eating at That's you? That's usually what it is, yeah. <laughs> so the wrists had been eating at me for a while. Was it the pronating kind of thing or what was the issue? It, that and also the exact way the the carpals are drawn. So hadrosaurs do an interesting thing where they've got a, a the middle metacarpal is actually displaced a little bit because there's a carpal that's situated between the ulna and the radius that sort of extends in there. I actually gave a, I gave a oh. talk about it on brachylophosaurus stance and locomotion in like like a decade, decade and a half ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the thing is, it's really neat because it's actually a locking mechanism when they straighten them out, oh. um, which, you know, suggests that really those forearms are for locomotion, even though they are obviously tinier than the hind limbs by a good wide margin. Mm-hmm. But outside of a few specific species that I documented and I hadn't ever really gone back and like fixed all that either. And yeah, I did have them a little over pronated and wanted to fix that. And so, gotcha. Yep. So it was mostly the forelimbs. And then I think that caused the posture to just kind of adjust a little bit. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And I was trying to get rid of, you know, I had a long-term project to make all my skeletals not be in the same pose as Greg Paul's because he requested politely that nobody use the same poses his skeletal drawings a few years ago mm. and although he wasn't specifically like naming me obviously i had more skeletals than anyone else <laughs> so i've been trying to shift them a different direction since then so and that's actually fine i mean the irony is i had posed them the same in an attempt to make it sort of a standard to make it easier to compare mm-hmm. right but to be honest a lot of his poses are really at the high end of dynamic motion by some paleontologist standards mm-hmm. and so i had actually had requests many times to to like make them saunter more than sprint. Uh-huh. And I've been like, no, 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 they're more useful this way. It's okay. <laughs> and so now, now, as I redo them, they're all sauntering more. So, <laughs> they're they're like more saunter. sedate skeletals. <laughs> <laughs> the sauntering skeletals. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. I think I saw one recently. It might have been the Hesperornithoides. Was that the one that kind of had a crushed head? There was one where you meticulously put in like a hundred bones, like or fragments of that cranial. That was yeah. <laughs> yep, and and most of them are roughly correct. I mean, I, the thing is, I did that because I was doing a rigorous version for our publication, and since it was a publication that mm. I was primary author on, I felt the responsibility for it to as accurately as possible represent what we had. So, yeah. I might not always put that much time into it. <laughs> that one was crazy. Yeah. Well, and you also have to have like really direct access at the time yeah. to see that kind of detail. So, and most people probably don't care. But it, it is an issue with that specimen because like we have this lovely brain case and we can't see part of it because of the problems with CT scanning it and the preservation where like the, the um, barite and the uh, hollow areas of the mm-hmm. skeleton just like blow out the uh, CT scan. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is crushed. <laughs> Which will take forever to reconstruct from what is visible in the CT scan. So yeah. yeah, yeah. But by the drawing, you can really get a good feel for like we are very confident in you know what its femur looked like or something. In the back of its skull, we think we know. Less confident, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it is roughly held together, so like the general volume's gonna be right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the details are less clear. Yeah, that was an excellent skeletal, though. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, we really liked on your website the cheat sheet for anatomy. The handy-dandy guide? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I actually hope to expand those because I, I, making them helps me like commit a lot of stuff to memory. I mm-hmm. actually teach a comparative anatomy class in the fall, so that's a little easier now. Mm-hmm. But I also just feel like it's hard to find references. Like yeah. I'd like to do some more with like individual vertebral anatomy or maybe the inside of skulls because, you know, when you're starting out, you're like, oh, what's a... Pre-zygopophysis. Yeah. 
What's a post-psychopopsis? Is it a cereal I can buy? <laughs> Part of your complete breakfast, post-psychopopsis. <laughs> I don't know, right? Like, how do you know these things? Yeah. There isn't, you know, the dinosauria sort of can stand in. I feel like if you know to buy the dinosauria and it doesn't scare the bejesus out of you <laughs> to try to read through it if you've never read anything technical before, like it can do that. But yeah, I don't know. Hopefully it's helpful. I'm glad yeah. you liked it. Yeah. That's yeah, very nice. Oh, I realized there's one more thing we need to ask. Okay. We didn't ask you about lips. Oh, why would you think I'd have an opinion on that? <laughs> <laughs> sure. You recently updated all of your, or you started all the process. Yep. Are you done? Have you no, updated all of them? Okay. I'm not, yeah. But all of the non beaked theropods are going to have lips. Yep. And why? <laughs> because they did. <laughs> That's a good reason. Oh, wait, you probably want details. <laughs> Mitra. (laughs) So, okay. There's a few things about lips. First of all, obviously as as mammals, when we say lips, we tend to, you know, think big, fleshy, muscular lips, which is by and large just a mammal thing. Mm -hmm. So those are not what I mean. For some reason... For the there's a you know there's a group of people who have obviously argued that they don't have lips and that and that's fine that's that's how these things get resolved as people argue and then eventually they realize I'm right um, <laughs> I'm just kidding about that I'm sure I've been wrong many more times than right so the thing is like there seems to be this belief about the non-lipped theropod people that lips are somehow rare like that lizards are unusual and therefore you don't want to use lizards as your model but the really weird thing about that is if you actually go through and map out like the taxa that have lips, pretty much everything has some sort of oral covering, either beaks or lips. Mm-hmm. It really is a small number of groups, including derived aquatic crocodilians that have them. But all the basal croc line taxa, you know, down there um, headed towards them, all have the same features you see in other amniotes, mm-hmm. you know, because you'll find lips in fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And amphibians. And not just lizards, but the tuatara suggesting it's a widespread, you know, diapsid feature. And so, like, yes, yes, if you look at just archosaurs today, the living dinosaurs all tend to have beaks, and the living crocodilians tend to all not have anything. Mm-hmm. But those are associated with very clear anatomical features that you really don't see shared in theropods, or really most anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first thing. Is like I feel like the 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 default assumption minus evidence has to be lips first. And then you look for like correlates of loss. Mm-hmm. With beaks, of course, I think we can all kind of agree. You can kind of tell usually edentulousness is associated or at least tooth reduction is usually associated to some degree with the, the beaked portion. Mm-hmm. Not 100%, but most of the time, beak structures tend to be pretty recognizable. With liplessness, there are actually some pretty good correlates um, that you see in crocodilians and some other animals that probably were lipless. So like, having really large snaggle tooth, they can't see my air quotes, but like overlapping and interlocking teeth, which you see in crocodilians, you see in plesiosaurs, which you see in at least the anterior portion of some toothed pterosaurs. Mm-hmm. Like those probably are animals that have reduced or non-existent oral coverings for those because otherwise you can't really get that three-dimensional pokey outy interlocking tooth yeah. system to work without like ripping up the inside of your the lips combination of underbite and overbite right. sort of yep move. yep yep but dinosaurs don't really have that right they none of them have that <laughs> <laughs> indeed unless you're in jurassic park <laughs> touche <laughs> and indeed there was no lips on the indoraptor model mm-hmm. so good for them i guess <laughs> also sort of. the weird snaggle tooth tyrannosaur ishy things in the king kong remake yeah. Also yeah. crocodilian, no lips, but also kind of big old snaggle toothy. It's kind of two thing. wrongs making a right. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you messed up both. Way to go, you're consistent. <laughs> Congratulations, Peter Jackson. <laughs> and so then the other thing is if you look up closer, you can see things like animals without lips tend to have very rounded sort of cross sections of the like maxilla or the to- or the, the dentary or whatever, the tooth row. Mm-hmm. Because like the skin is affixed to it and it's just growing around it. Hmm. Whereas animals with, you know, soft tissue lip-like extra oral coverings tend to have very sharp rimmed edges. And you can see that in, in all non-beaked theropods. Mm-hmm. And then like there's at least some tantalizing quantitative data with like foramina count that's been looked at. And it depends on the exact dinosaur group. And, and of course dinosaurs are hard because you have also the whole cheeks or no cheeks issue 
with like a lot of ornithischian dinosaurs mm-hmm. and possibly prosauropod grade dinosaurs and possibly some theropods like therizinosaurs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Tyrannosaurs come up a lot, partially because they do seem to have some extra foramina up there and they do have a little bit more sculpturing of like the maxilla going on, but also because one of the main proponents of them, of no lips, just like loves to make most of the argument about Stan, which is fine. Stan's a really interesting animal. Um, it has a really weird mandible that's like not only shorter than other tyrannosaurs are, but like the left and the right mandible don't even seem to be the exact same length. So I don't, huh. I don't know what's going on, but you can find lizards, which definitely have lips, who also have bizarre developmental problems, often resulting from like a lack of nutrition. And so, yeah, who knows? (laughs) But the big thing is I don't tend to think fixating on one specimen out of many is like the way to make the best argument. Right. And and other people don't agree. Right. But yeah, it seems like there could be a pathology or... That's, yeah, my take is it doesn't seem typical even of other T-Rex specimens. So, yep. So for our listeners then, where's the best place for them to find out more about you and your work? Well, probably my website, skeletaldrawing.com, spelled like it sounds. Uh, there's a blog there that occasionally has new posts put up on it <laughs> at a rate of, I think, about two or three times a year. Uh, and that's the main place. I do also have like a Facebook page, also Skeletal Drawing, um, and a Twitter handle at Skeletal Drawing. So if you put Skeletal and Drawing into Google, you'll probably find all the stuff. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of SVP to chat with us. Yeah, thank you very much. I had a great time <laughs> and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your SVP. Thanks again, Scott. We've been admiring your skeletal drawings for a long time, and it's great that we finally got a chance to talk to you about them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Critosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was a hadrosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now New Mexico in the U.S. in the Kirtland Formation, and it was estimated to be about 30 feet or 10 meters long based on comparisons to other genera. Critosaurus was an herbivore, and it was both bipedal and quadrupedal. It had a broad beak to crop plants, and it could eat plants with a grinding motion similar to chewing. It continually replaced its teeth. It had these dental batteries with hundreds of teeth. And this is based on its relatives, because only fragments of Critosaurus have been found. The type species is Critosaurus navajovius, and the genus name means separated lizard and refers to how the cheekbones in the incomplete type skull are arranged. Sometimes it's been translated as noble lizard, and this refers to its Roman nose, which in the original specimen was originally restored flat since the region was fragmented and disarticulated. Barnum Brown found the type specimen in 1904 in San Juan County, New Mexico. Most of the front of the skull were fragments or eroded, and Brown reconstructed it based on Edmontosaurus and left out many fragments. He saw the fragments were different from Edmontosaurus, but said that it was because they were crushed. Brown wanted to call the animal Nectosaurus, but then found out that that name had already been used. After Gryposaurus was described in 1914, Brown changed his mind about the specimen's snout and gave it a Gryposaurus-like arched nasal crest, and then synonymized Critosaurus with Gryposaurus. This stayed the case until 1990, and there were three species, Critosaurus navajovius, Critosaurus incurvimanus, and Critosaurus notabilis, which was formerly Gryposaurus notabilis, and then it was reassigned Gryposaurus notabilis in the 1990s. Hadrosaurus brevisets, which was only known from a dentary, was assigned to Critosaurus by Lowell and Wright, but this isn't really accepted anymore. Because of the synonymization, most depictions of Critosaurus until 1990 look more like Gryposaurus because there was more Gryposaurus material. 
1990, Jack Horner and Dave Weissample, hopefully I said that right, separated Gryposaurus and Critosaurus based on Critosaurus's partial skull, and how the skull looked is unknown. Critosaurus incurvimanus is now considered to be a synonym of Gryposaurus notabilis. Horner described two skulls that were found in 1922 from New Mexico that were different from Gryposaurus and referred them to Critosaurus, but in 1993, Adrian Hunt and Spencer Lucas said they were separate genera, Anazazosaurus and Nashroibitosaurus. But not everyone agrees with this. Albert Prieto Marquez in 2013 found that the type specimens of Critosaurus and Anazazosaurus were the same, based on the elements found in both specimens, and said, Anazazosaurus was a synonym of Critosaurus, but its own species, Critosaurus horneri. A Critosaurus skull was later found in Texas, and a partial skull from Coahuila, Mexico, and has been referred to Critosaurus navajovius. The type specimen of Critosaurus consists of a partial skull and lower jaws, and some postcranial elements, most of the muzzle and upper beak are missing. Jim Kirkland and others found a partial skeleton described as Critosaurus, but Prieto Marquez found it to be an indeterminate saurolophene. It was larger than other known specimens, at 36 feet or 11 meters long. It had a heavy rectangular-ish maxilla, and the lower beak had tooth-like outlines. It also had a unique crest based on the skull of the Anazazosaurus specimen with some bone from the nasals that came between and above the eyes and folded back under itself and it had a flat head and solid crest. The nasal crest may have been used for species recognition or social ranking, and it may have had inflatable air sacs. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Critosaurus include Alamosaurus, Parasaurolophus, Pentaceratops, Notocephalosaurus, and Zoornitholestes. And our fun fact of the day is that Nothronychus graphemi is the most complete Therizinosaurid. And I know this because <laughs> there is a really awesome skeletal drawing of it on skeletaldrawing.com, which is Scott Hartman's website, where he has versions of all of his skeletal drawings. And he actually did two versions of Nothronychus graphemi. There's both a full reconstruction, which is kind of a typical skeletal drawing that he would do, where you see all of the bones on a fully fleshed out animal. And then there's also another just showing the bones that were found. And really, it's an amazing find when you look at the bones that were found. It's essentially only missing the head, neck, and a few other bones, which means they found a full hand. And since it's a Therizinosaur, it includes those crazy, huge, like foot-long claws, especially when you're including the keratin sheath and the drawing because it's the skeleton in white and then there's a black outline of what they think the full body looked like, includes guesstimates of those claws, keratin sheaths, which it just looks amazing. And it's a really cool find. And it's now one of my favorite dinosaurs now that I know a little more about it. And I really want a replica, especially of its hands. You say that about a lot of dinosaurs. I could go for a nice replica museum <laughs> slash bedroom <laughs> or living room, <laughs> if you don't mind. Don't know if we have enough space. We'll fight space. <laughs> I can build shelves. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page, patreon.com slash I Know Dino, to join our growing community and also see updates of our ongoing Australian road trip which is going very well. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.